This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies. And it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you've all had a lovely week. We have a very exciting episode for you today with the one and only Twiggy. Twiggy is, of course, the 60s icon who needs no introduction from me, She actually talks in this episode about that iconic photograph and how strange it is to see her picture on mugs and t-shirts across the world. And it was such a pleasure to get to chat with her and we had a cup of tea as we recorded. And of course, Tea with Twiggy is actually the name of her podcast where she sits down and chats to some of her closest friends who include Joanna Lumley, Elaine Page, Christopher Biggins and many more. Twiggy knows everyone and she has some great stories as you will hear in today's episode so do make sure to check out her podcast too. I actually have a little surprise launching for you next week well I think it will be next week and me telling you it's next week might actually make it happen so fingers crossed anyway so do make sure you're subscribed to Desert Island Dishes wherever you get your podcasts and you will be the first to know. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank, our sponsor for this season. They help us to bring the show to you each week and for that we are very grateful. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Dame Leslie Lawson, although she is actually one of those rare celebrities known by a single name and that name, of course, is Twiggy. She was the girl from Neasden, North London, who became the face of the swinging 60s. With her petite frame at just five foot six, Twiggy smashed the stereotypes of what it meant to be a supermodel. Her pixie haircut and wide eyes will forever be iconic. As the model of her age, she was propelled into the glamorous world of fashion and photography, and later she found success as a singer, dancer, and actress. She starred in Ken Russell's film The Boyfriend, a performance for which she won not one, but two Golden Globes. In 1983, her talents took her to Broadway for her debut in the musical My One and Only. She is a wife, mother, grandmother, and of course, fellow podcaster. 
She has said of her many successes, I think I've had a brilliant career. And more importantly, I've had a very happy life. Welcome, Twiggy. <laughs> Thank you. That's a good intro. Thank you very much. <laughs> Twiggy, am I right in thinking that you didn't like the name Twiggy when you were first called it? Well, actually, it wasn't the Twiggy I didn't like. The first nickname was Sticks. Oh. Because the person who called me that thought my legs looked like sticks. And I hated that for obvious reasons. Yeah. And then that turned into Twiggy. And, and I, I thought it was a bit silly. But actually, over the last 50 years, it's been rather kind to me. Yeah. I wonder how differently things would have panned out if it had stayed at sticks. <laughs> I don't want to even go there. Well, I often think also if I'd have just been called Leslie... Would the papers written that big first page in February 1966? Because Leslie, the face of 66, doesn't quite have the headline grabbing nature as Twiggy. I think Mm. the name helped propel me out there. I mean, hopefully I proved later that, you know, there was talent to go with it. But um, I think initially, I think it was actually rather helpful because it was catchy. It was unusual. People talked about it. And um there you go. That was a long time ago. Over 50 years ago, I hate to say. You haven't aged a day, Twiggy. It really is the coolest name. And to be one of only a handful of people who are referred to by only one name, that is quite amazing. I wondered that level of fame, I suppose because you were so young when it all started, it's all you've ever known, really. But do you have any words of wisdom for anyone out there who dreams of becoming famous? Oh, gosh. I mean, you've got to remember when it happened to me, it was a very, very different uh, world. Uh, there was no social media. Young people won't believe that, but there, were, <laughs> there was no mobile phones. There were uh, big fashion magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and Tatler and Elle and a few kind of ladies magazines like Woman's Own and and a few teenage ones, but nothing like there is today and the, and certainly newspapers didn't really write about fashion so to get a full page in a national newspaper which is what happened to me a lovely lady called Deirdre McSharry decided to name me the face of 66 and then because Diana Vreeland who who was the editress of American Vogue saw the piece she took me over to America and that was the big thing because I always say Diana Vreeland turned me global <laughs> because otherwise I think it, I'd have probably just been known in this country. Have there been any downsides that for someone young now dreaming of that life you would maybe caution against or has it all been very positive? Mostly it's been very positive but I think a lot because I didn't, I certainly didn't expect, you know, I was a schoolgirl. I, I hated what I looked like like most teenagers, I was too thin, you know, and I, I, my hair was too straight. You're either too fat, too thin, too tall, too short. You want blonde hair, you want dark hair, you want curly, you know, no teenager is happy with the way they <laughs> they look, I think. So um, I wasn't expecting it, certainly. And if you look at models before me in the early 60s, they were very sophisticated women. You know, I was this skinny kid. I just happened to have a look and I became the new look, but I didn't plan it. That was just what I looked like. And I was obsessed with clothes. I used to make, I was a mod. So I used to make my own clothes because again, in those days, you could get shops that sold kids clothes and you could get shops that 
uh, sold women's clothes, but there were no teenage clothes until mm. this brilliant woman called Barbara Hulanicki came along with Bieber. Oh, yes. Which became my complete obsession. <laughs> I think if there are any teenagers out there listening, they're going to take a lot of comfort in the fact that even Twiggy did not feel good enough as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a healthy way to feel. There's nothing worse than meeting somebody who thinks they're amazing. <laughs> they're usually really boring. But, you know, as far as, you know, it's it's a tough game out there. I, you know, I'm not trying to uh, poo-hoo it really. I mean, I was very, very lucky and I met extraordinary people who changed my life, obviously, from Diana Vreeland, from Deirdre McSharry, who wrote about me, Barry Lattigan, who took my first photograph, you know, the one that's kind of very famous with the little fair arse sweater. That was my first photograph, actually. And it's probably the most famous one. I've seen it on many cushions. That must be a very strange feeling. But I think if if kids you know, the thing is, if, you, if you're going to have a go at it, have a go at it, because I really think people should try to live their dream. But I think you've also got to be realistic. It is a tough world out there. And, and certainly the modelling world, which I don't know 100% how it works now, because it's so different from when I was a kid. But I think the competition is huge. And I just get, I just get slightly sad when I hear people say, if they're asked, teenage, and they they say, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to be famous. You should want to be a wonderful writer, a wonderful actor, a wonderful singer, a wonderful scientist. And then if you become famous through that, through your talent, then that's a bit to just want to be famous. <laughs> For what? Although I can think of a few people that I won't name that are very famous and don't do a lot. Twiggy, <laughs> go on, name them for us. No, 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 no. <laughs> My lips are sealed. <laughs> I've heard that you don't relish the thought of being on your own. So what do you think of the idea of being sent to a desert island? I wouldn't like it very much because I'm I'm not a loner at all. Um, but, um, and I wouldn't like it if there were lots of bugs and creepy crawlies. I don't like things like that. Okay, we'll try to arrange a bug-free island. Yes, yeah. with nice sandy beach and, uh, and a nice house to live in with air conditioning, please. Okay, okay. I'll see what I can arrange. <laughs> you grew up in Neasden, North London, so let's talk about the first Desert Island dish, and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Uh, that was quite an easy one, actually, because my mum, who I loved to bits, but she was... <laughs> She was not known for her cooking, let's put it there. Although she did make the best apple pie. I still haven't tasted one as good as that. Uh, very, It was very English kind of ordinary food my mum cooked. She she buggered up most vegetables because she overcooked them, boiled them for 25 minutes. But that's what everyone did. I know, and they were pretty disgusting. No wonder kids didn't like <laughs> vegetables. Not a crunch in sight. But my my the thing that made... Reminds me mainly of my childhood is mum used to make, I think it was a boiled ham hock. She'd put it in water because I think you have to get the salt out and boil it for hours and then peace pudding with it. It's actually making my mouth water. (laughs) And she used to put the peace pudding, which are those hard peas, yellow peas, in a muslin rag. And then she'd cook those in the water that the ham had soaked in overnight. So you got that flavour. And then at some point she added carrots into the water and then she'd boil uh, potatoes on the side. And it is the most, and it's, I think it's a really old dish. I bet it goes back 
you know, hundreds of years. I've never managed to make it as as well as mum did. That's the kind of dish that needs a revival. I think people have sort of forgotten about peas pudding, but it's really good. Oh, it's so good. You were very shy as a child. And I think you've said that your mother tried to take you to ballet and brownies and you hated them so much you ran out crying. I did. (laughs) So the fact that you ended up doing what you did is quite amazing. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Oh, God, when I was a little girl, I probably wanted to be a ballerina because I liked tutus. But then when I got older and I was at, gra- I, I, I was at grammar school when the whole thing happened to me, um, I was hoping to get into art school and study fashion and design, which is funny because I've kind of ended up doing that along the way anyway because yeah. I love it so much. And I'm, a, I'm an avid sewer. I always said if I could never get another job, I'd just take my sewing machine and make things. <laughs> The fact that you did go on to do what you did, I think part of me thinks that confidence is either something that you're born with or you're not. But do you think you learnt how to be confident? Yeah, I'm still not the most confident person I know, but you do learn as you go along. And and every time you have some form of success, it helps, obviously. And also, I think what helped me a lot, people like Ken Russell, who directed me in The Boyfriend, who at the time was the hottest English director, when somebody like that has faith in you, you suddenly think, well, he wouldn't be putting me in this and gambling that if I could do it or not. So when you have somebody like that who believes in you, and the same with my one and only on Broadway, which I was really scared about because The Boyfriend was a film, so I was used to cameras. So although I was nervous, I, there was an element that I was used to, but Broadway was like an, it's like, oh my God, going out every night in front of 2000 people on Broadway was scary. I can't even imagine. But Tommy Tune, who was my co-star and and co-director of that, I thought, well, if he thinks I can do it, you know, he's not going to put himself out there with me if it's not going to work. So that that gives you confidence. And then yeah. when we opened and we got rave reviews, that gives you a lot of confidence. Yeah, but that's an interesting way to think about it, sort of reframing it through someone else's eyes and saying, yeah. okay, I might not feel like I'm the best, but if they are feeling confident for me, then I can do this. I think so. And I, over the years, I mean, I've got lots of friends, act, actors and actresses, and a lot, most of them are very insecure and shy. It's so strange that though, isn't it? So funny. They are. It's nice actually. I like it. Is it right that you had, you did have a secret dream of becoming a model because you, you had an idol in, in Jean Shrimpton, but you just never even believed that that would be a possibility. Absolutely. I mean, she was my person I had on my wall. I thought she was the most beautiful creature I'd ever seen. And, um, before me, most models came from middle class or upper class families and they became models if it worked for them until they met their lord or their rich husband and <laughs> got married. <laughs> and the girls from my class, they weren't models. So it, although it was like a distant, oh, I, it would be lovely to be a model and I love clothes, but I didn't look like Jean Shrimpton. I didn't look anything like her. So it wasn't something I thought could be a reality. And I certainly wouldn't have gone ahead to try and become a model. When I read that, it really struck me because it is so hard to believe now, knowing what we know, that you wouldn't have thought it was possible in the years with everything that followed. Were you not at all aware of being very beautiful? Like, Were you not treated differently by boys? No, 
No, I was this funny, skinny kid. <laughs> I think teenage boys go after slightly different looking girls than I look like <laughs> without putting too fine a point on it. <laughs> the series of events that took place to you being discovered meeting Justin Villeneuve to having the iconic but spur of the moment haircut and having that famous photograph taken, it's almost like all of the stars aligned and set you on this incredible journey. Can you tell us just a little bit about how that occurred? Oh gosh, I'm going to do the short version. <laughs> in, in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. Basically, it was a friend of a friend happened to work on a magazine. I mean, I was a schoolgirl, but I was already doing that makeup at weekends that became very famous. And she, this friend said, oh, I've got a friend who works on a magazine. She sent me to meet this woman. I had long hair parted in the middle. And um, she said, I'm going to get some test shots done, but you've got to go and have your hair done. Sent me to Leonard's. It was called the House of Leonard in Mayfair. It's a very posh salon. And I went in and Leonard came over and said, I want to cut your hair. And I didn't want my hair cut. No. I loved my long hair. But I was too scared in this very posh salon to say no. So I had the hair cut. He sent me to have the photograph done. It was a very short haircut. Very, very short. Uh, but I did love it, actually. And... Um, had the photograph taken. I went back to school. The magical thing that happened was Deirdre McSharry, who worked for the Daily Express, was a client of Leonard. She came in, saw the photograph that he had on the wall of his haircut and um, said, I love the haircut. Who's the girl? And he said, oh, she's a schoolgirl, and her nickname is Twiggy. And she co contacted me at home and I went to meet her. And then that piece, Twiggy, the face of 66, came out in the Daily Express. And that was when my life changed forever. <laughs> so I left school and I got booked. And the big change was going to America, as I said mm. earlier. So within a month of that haircut, you were getting <laughs> offers to go to Paris. And as you say, your, your life changed completely. You've described that time as madness, but also said that you loved it. How did that feel? It must have been so surreal that all of your friends were still at school doing normal teenage things that you mm. were doing a few months before. And suddenly you're the most famous woman in the country. <laughs> Quite honestly, I was so busy. I didn't actually stop to think about it, really. Probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. I was working with lovely people. I was traveling. I was earning money. I was wearing gorgeous clothes. But I traveled, went to America, went to Japan. It was, it was amazing. And then I met people like Ken Russell, which changed my life again, because at the ripe old age of 19, we started fil filming The Boyfriend. And that's when I decided that I wanted to follow that route rather than modelling. Let's pause there and talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. I really wasn't into cooking. I love cooking now. I think I'm a very good cook, actually. <laughs> I love it. My husband thinks I'm a very good cook. But I can't, I don't think, I don't think I cooked as a teenager because I was traveling and when I was at home, mum cooked. I think it was probably something very simple like spaghetti bolognese or something. I'm not 100% sure if it was the actual first thing. And I don't think I really got into cooking till I had Carly, my daughter. When you have children, you want them to have good food inside them. And I, like most new mums, read up about what nutrition kids should have and they should have fresh food. And so I think I became a better cook 
when I had Carly when I was 29. Mm. I think that is quite often the case. Like that happens mm. with lots of people, I think. I think so. You were famous for your petite frame and you were so young <laughs> at the time. You were still growing. And you've said at that time that actually you ate like a horse, but no one would believe you. Modeling is such hard work and you've got these hectic schedules. What sort of thing would you eat day to day? Because the food scene was so different then. We didn't have the choice. I, I mean, I do think now that um, Britain, well, certainly London, I, do, I can't talk for the rest of uh, Great Britain, but certainly London has got some of the best restaurants in the world. And they don't know, it's not always like the posh, expensive ones. I like finding the little ones with people who make homemade stuff and... I mean, where I live in Kensington, we've I think we've got one of the best Japanese restaurants and we go there usually once a week. What sort of thing were you eating day to day back then? I, funny enough, because we're talking about Japanese food, which I absolutely love. The first time I went to Japan, to Tokyo, again, I was 17. And when they told me they ate raw fish, it was like, oh my God, they eat raw fish. And I wouldn't eat it. I, I mean, I, I ate the chicken and the cooked food, but the thought of raw fish, because I don't think we had Japanese restaurants then. It's been said that so enduring is that image of Twiggy, side-swept hair, heavy eyes, delicate neck, that it's strange to think she was a model for only four years. You have described a lunch that you had with Ken Russell, the film director, when you turned up and unbeknown to you, Paul McCartney was there. I think you've said that just three years previously, you were at one of his concerts screaming in the crowd with the rest of the girls. Yeah. I mean, that must have been a pinch me moment. It was. And it was, I can remember thinking, oh my, because Paul was my favourite. I mean, we laugh about that because we've been friends since that day. So he's an old mate now. But every teenage girl had a favourite Beatle. And Paul was my favourite. And my best friend, her favourite was George. And um, so we used to argue about that all the time. So I, I go into the restaurant to meet up with Ken and it was a project that he wanted Paul to do the music for and me to star in. It never happened in the end for whatever reason. And and then the boyfriend happened instead. But all I kept thinking, I've got to sit opposite Paul McCartney without falling apart, without going absolutely stupid. And um, he was really sweet. I mean, he is one of the nicest, not only most talented men in the world, but he's one of the nicest men in the world. And... Um, and that's when we we became friends. Really, we we st although that project didn't happen, we kept in touch. Amazing. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. It's a Japanese dish called uzuzukuri. Don't ask me to spell it, but I think it's something like U Z U S A kuri, something like that. And what it is, not not all Japanese restaurants do it, but it's very, very, very thinly sliced sea bass, raw sea bass. And they usually serve it on a platter with, I think it's like, a. it's usually a secret, you know, you always ask them, what's that sauce? And they kind of smile. Yeah. <laughs> but I think having eaten lots of Japanese food, I think it's kind of a ponzu sauce, which is like a soy lemon. It's out of this world. It is. It just melts in your mouth and it's so beautiful. It's a delicacy really, but it's, I dream about it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so as you said, you worked with Ken Russell on his film, The Boyfriends, something that you had to have dancing and singing lessons for for nine months prior to filming. And you went on to win two Golden Globes for your role. I mean, 
Twiggy, that's just beyond anything to go from obscurity to modeling in the way that you did and then transition over to acting and succeed in that. Did you ever think that you'd be an actress? Not originally, no, no, the thought of it. I mean, I'm, I, I ran away from tap class when I was eight. <laughs> my mum took me and I just left. I didn't, I, I wanted to be with my mum. I was so shy. So it's weird that I ended up doing what I do, weird. You've said that the things that you ended up doing are obviously the kind of things that people dream of, and yet they weren't necessarily your dreams. You were just going with the flow and taking opportunities as they arose. Do you think in a weird way that's actually why it worked out so well? Probably. Also, I didn't have that thing. When you meet people who are very, very want something so badly, it's good to be ambitious, but it also can be very soul destroying if it you know listen in our business things fall apart all the time I mean I've had you know various projects that haven't worked or haven't happened because money fell out or a producer left you know and it and it's soul destroying because you work so hard putting it together but you know it's just the nature of the beast it was all such a learning curve for me I I just kind of concentrated on learning what I was doing for that project I didn't really think about it actually and and you were in this very lucky situation of just the shy girl you talked about back in Neesden would never have believed that she would be thrown a party by Sunny and Cher in Los Angeles please can you tell us a little bit about that because there aren't many people that could make that claim to fame <laughs> yeah well you know when I went into New York in 1967 it was, I was like part of that British invasion. You know, the Beatles had gone in in the early 60s. And I have to say, the Americans have always been so supportive of me and what I do and given me chances that I don't think I would have had here. And there is a kind of love fest between the Americans and the English. And, and at the time, the Brits were very kind of hot. So when I got to LA, Sonny and Cher threw a party for me. <laughs> had you met them before? No, <laughs> it was just a kind of Hollywood thing. I don't know. And it was extraordinary and they were lovely. And and Steve McQueen, who was the hottest actor around at the time, he turned up on his motorcycle. <gasps> and I think he asked me to dance and I said no because I was too shy. <laughs> Twiggy! Oh, my goodness. What a story. <laughs> what did all of your friends back at home think about that? Well, it's weird because my life changed so drastically. I kind of lost, which is sad. We we kind of met up later in later years, but I kind of lost my school friend. They were still at school and I was traveling the world. How can they relate to what you're going through? And... I know. I mean, we talked on home phone, no, no mobiles then. <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the fourth Desert Island dish. Twiggy, what is your favorite sandwich? Of all the interviews you've ever done, Twiggy, have you ever been asked about your favourite sandwich? No, I don't think I have. <laughs> and it was a toss-up, actually. Can I have two? Yes, you can. One is just a very basic cheese and pickle, Branston pickle and cheddar cheese. Yeah. Uh, the other one, which I think is my real favourite, because I eat it more and I think it's slightly healthier, <laughs> is um, thin brown bread buttered with uh, mild smoked salmon Sliced pickled beetroot Ooh. and rocket. Ooh. And lemon juice on the smoked salmon, obviously, and black pepper. 
I'm going to have that when we finish this. Yeah, <laughs> me, me too. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and pre- that's pretty healthy as well for a sandwich. That sounds like a really good sandwich, Twiggy. It's a goodie. <laughs> in 1983, you were cast in the Broadway production of My One and Only. And you've said of that, it was the greatest professional thing that you've ever done because it proved to you that you could do something that you thought you couldn't. Tell us a little bit more about that. It was one of the best professional experiences I've ever had. I didn't think I could do it. Um, Because actually when Tommy Toome was in The Boyfriend with me, so we were friends, and when he rang me about my one and only on Broadway, I thought it was about a film we'd been trying to get going 10 years earlier. And I said to him, oh, when do we start filming? And he said, no, it's not a film. It's it's on Broadway. And I said, I can't do that. And he said, there's no such word as can't. <laughs> Is that what he said? Yeah. <laughs> then what am I going to do? I got to New York and we start on Broadway. <laughs> I had Tommy believing in me and um, and his talent is enormous he but by that time in the early 80s he'd become one of the biggest directors on Broadway and I think I mean I always tease him and say you know you could he's got so many Tony Awards he could make a crown of them <laughs> I think he's got something like 13 Tony Awards for directing and performing and so having him as my my mentor and my guide really gave me huge confidence and then when you open on Broadway and you know, it's always a chance. The critics can close a show overnight there. But f- they liked us. They loved us. And we got rave reviews. Um, I did it for 18 months. So when did you discover that you could sing? Oh, I've always sung. Okay. At school, I was in the choir. But I've all, I think my first album was in the early 70s. I can't remember. Mainly kind of country music because I love that, which has never been big in this country. Mm. And doing something like Broadway, I mean, it must have been physically exhausting because you're doing performance after performance. It is the most exhausting time I found, and I've talked to lots of people who've done long runs in shows, is the putting the show together and opening because the stress and the strain and the practice and the changes that happened. When you get into the run, you get on a schedule. Okay. I mean, your whole life evolves around the show. So you do, it's still eight performances a week. Okay. And it's quite a nice schedule, actually. And what was nice for me, my daughter at that point was five. So it meant I wasn't traveling around. I was in one place. I was in New York. Yeah, I didn't see her at night, but she was in bed. You know, I'd always make sure I, before I went to the theater, she'd be kind of getting ready for bed. So I, you know, I'd see her. And on matinee days, she'd often come to the theatre with me and get spot to death by all the girl dancers and gather up all the sequins and feathers because <laughs> it was a it was a show set in the 1920s. So there were lots of boa feathers and sequins and, and she loved that. Amazing. So it's a very nice schedule for a mum, actually. I think there's a good lesson in what you've said, that there probably are a lot of things that we're more capable of than we even believe is possible. And the only way to find out what they are is to give it a go. But I did think when I was reading your story, at that point, you were so well known. Did you feel professional pressure in terms of, you know, they say you're only as good as your last show, or if you're a chef, your last meal? Did you feel scared with the eyes of the world watching you try something new? 
I don't think I stopped to think about it because I, th- I think if I had, I wouldn't have yeah. done <laughs> Well, there's a lesson um, in that too. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I was, that it was so much work to put this show together. I think I worked day to day and learning my, my tap, because Tommy's one of the great tap dancers. And I had to, I mean, I never got to his level, but I had to get my tapping up to a certain level for him. And we had also another member of the cast called Honey Coles, who was one of the great black American tap dancers. And he was 72 when we did the show. Oh, wow. And every night in the, he had one big number that used to bring the house down. And I used to go every night, every performance, I never missed one, I'd stand in the wings and watch him because what he did with his feet was miraculous. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. You now describe yourself as a self-confessed foodie who is much more likely to be found in the kitchen. And in fact, food is the first thing you and your husband Lee talk about when you wake up in the morning. So let's talk about the fifth Desert Island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. What it is, it's it's the dish that I always do if I'm not sure what I want. Do you know Ooh, what I mean? Yes, tell us. Because often you know, you think, oh, I fancy this tonight or I fancy that. But if I can't think of what we want, I always go to this dish always without fail and I always love it. And it's it's a Jamie Oliver dish, actually. I think he calls it proper bloke's pasta or something. I can't, something okay. like that. <laughs> and what it is, it's fusilli uh, pasta. You get really good sausages and take them out of their skins and get them in in the frying pan. You kind of get them like a mince. Mm. You mince them down. And then you stir in fennel seeds and chilli seeds into that. A splash of white wine, I think, lemon juice. Anyway, you cook it down and it goes kind of sticky. And, oh, it's making my mouth water. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and then you cook your pasta and save a little bit of the water like you should do with pasta. And then you pour the sausage mixture on when the pasta's cooked. I mean, when you've drained it, obviously, and the black pepper, parmesan. And I added, which isn't on his recipe, but I'm sure he won't mind that I added something. I, I put a sliced cold um, baby tomatoes on the top. Oh, yeah. So you get that crunchy bit on the... I mean, sometimes I've, I've overdone the chilli and it, like, blows your head off. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends how hot you want it, but it's so good. I'm only chuckling at that because I just wasn't expecting you to pick a dish that had that name, but the dish itself sounds absolutely delicious. Well, that's what he calls it. <laughs> I think. I'm sure it's called that. <laughs> that does, yeah, that does sound like a Jamie Oliver title. It does, but it's brilliant. Actually, I texted him when I first made it and said, "This is one of the best dishes ever." Oh my goodness! He 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 is brilliant. I I love his cookery books. In researching this interview, I listened to your episode of Desert Island Discs, which you recorded in 1989. And Twiggy, I was quite shocked at some of the questions that you were asked. There were very detailed questions about your weight and also a remark about your age and whether you would have more children before, in inverted commas, it was too late. I suppose the fact that I was shocked by those questions is a good thing because I don't think those are questions that we would ask someone now. But I wondered, as a very famous woman in the public eye, have you noticed a positive change in the way that we treat women? Um, yeah, I, I have no... I mean, I remember doing Desert Island Discs, but because um, I remember picking the songs, which I loved. I don't remember much of the interview, funnily enough. 
but it was quite a long time ago. <laughs> and I think it was a woman, wasn't it? Wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was Sue Lawley. Sue Lawley. Yeah, she was a bit spiky with me. She was. She was actually. Yeah, I can cope with that. You handled it <laughs> with a plum. But do you think times have changed for the better in that regard? Yes, to a certain degree, I think. It's like it's like everything. It's finding that happy medium, isn't it? You know, I think the whole Me Too thing has been brilliant, but sometimes it does take things too far sometimes. But it had to happen because it was too far the other way before, mm. the pendulum swinging, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And hopefully it will settle somewhere safely in the middle where everyone's happy. I mean, whether it'll ever get to equal pay for women and think, God only knows, but... At least we're trying. Also, I, I wasn't familiar with the obviously very famous incident that you had with Woody Allen, which sounds like a horrible thing that he did to you. Yeah, it was, you know, I would never do that at my age now to a young, new person. But, you know. Do you think he, he was intent on embarrassing you? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> and did you ever see him again? Nope. Nope. No, it was uh, it was not a nice experience. But I th- I think I came out of it when I watch it rerun. I came out of it okay, be- mainly because I couldn't believe what he was asking me, and mm. I I kind of turned the tables on him. But I didn't mean to. I was just trying to save me. Yeah, it was quick thinking. I'm here to tell the tale. Well, yeah, <laughs> he rues the day he messes with Twiggy. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Mm, yeah, the easiest one, if I've got lots of people coming, and it always goes down a treat, because I think if you've got six or eight people coming over to dinner, which are my favourite dinner parties, actually, when there's not too many people, and I can cope with cooking for that many, but it's nice to have something that you don't have to keep running to the kitchen and doing last minute. I usually do a baked pasta, penne pasta, Ooh. in a big baking dish and you can kind of pre-prepare it earlier and I usually do it with because we've got lots of friends who are veggies and things so it's easier to make a vegetarian one and you can do different things in it. I usually do a kind of slightly arabiata tomato sauce par cook the penne and then put it in the dish with lots of virgin olive extra virgin olive oil an arabiata tomato sauce chopped up uh, mozzarella basil then I on the top I do um, grated cheddar cheese and parmesan and then you when you're ready when you're you know half an hour before the guests arrive you put it in the oven and and it can stay in the oven I like it when it goes slightly brown on the top and um it's delicious and I usually serve that with little chicken thighs on the bone with the skin I put rosemary under the skin and Either you can roast them or you can grill them under the grill. But when I like them really well cooked, so they're kind of chewy. I'm always a bit nervous of undercooked chicken anyway. And actually my daughter reminded me when she, when Carly went off to university in Edinburgh, because I, I, I told her I was going to do this dish and she said, oh, mum, do you remember that? Because she had never cooked anything. She wasn't interested like most teenagers. She went up to uni and after the first couple of months, she was so sick of eating pizza and fish and chips. She phoned me and said, Mom, how do you make that chicken? <laughs> and, and it's still one of our favourite dishes, funny enough. Aww. I just do that with a big um, mixed leaf salad. Yum. That sounds amazing. Nice, crunchy bread. Very nice. Would you serve a pudding? Yeah. My husband doesn't like puddings. I love them. 
Uh, well, he says he likes them, but he tries not to eat them. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to be good. But I tell you what, again, is an easy one if you've got lots of people. And it, again, it always goes down well. I get the thick Greek yogurt mm-hmm. and mix it with um, runny honey. And then either do it in um, a pre-bought, I can't make pancakes, I, I, they don't work for me, but I, you can buy really good ones. You either do it in a pancake with, um, again, you can get them frozen, they're berries, blueberries and raspberries and strawberries, and I I, I melt them down because they're usually frozen. So they're kind of room temperatures, not hot, and sprinkle those on the top with a bit more honey and either do it in a pancake or one of those little meringue. Meringue nests. We've got a cookbook corner where we'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? Well, it's got to be one of Jamie Oliver's, I think, because I've got them all. I think what he's done for the food world is brilliant and um, and all for the scores and everything. But just going back to the books, they're really delicious recipes. They're really easy to follow. And because um, I've got some cookbooks that I get and I, and they're harder to follow, but I think his are brilliant. Do you have one in particular that's like a go-to? Not particularly. The one with the proper blokes <laughs> pastoring, but I can't remember which one it is. Twiggy, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I mean, I picked roast chicken dinner because I love that, and I thought it would give me strength, it would fill me up. <laughs> If I had to starve afterwards, but roast chicken, it's kind of our go-to roast, really. Roast chicken, roast potatoes, carrots, sprouts, gravy. Um, I like it with the Yorkshire pudding. I know you're meant to only have that with roast beef, but I like it. Well, I think Yorkshire puddings are so delicious. We should find more reasons to eat them. So yeah, I'm with you. And red red currant jelly with all of that. Yum. That's what I'd have. Yeah, that sounds really good. Are you going to have a pudding before we send you off? Um, a pudding. What should I have? Oh, tiramisu. I'll have a oh. tiramisu. <laughs> there are no wrong choices on Desert Island dishes, but there are some <laughs> right choices and tiramisu is the right choice. Twiggy, those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you again to Lloyds Bank, our sponsor for this season of Desert Island Dishes. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>